Welcome back to Pertaining to People, a podcast about all things anthropology and archaeology. We are your hosts, Jill, Lulu, and Kelsey. Thank you for joining us again. Yes, we had a bit of a change there. We were supposed to do this episode to be our second episode, but we ended up doing the Earth Day episode, which was a lot of fun, while Lulu was finishing up her papers. (laughs) But now we're going to continue on following up on our first episode, Origin Stories, to talk about some of the origins of anthropology and archaeology. So how did it all start, and how similar is it now to how it once was? So Lulu, you wanted to talk a little bit about what history actually means, those definitions. Yeah, so history is important because I think there's also a distinction between history as a discipline and archaeology, but history generally, it can mean all of the human past, but within the context of anthropology, it's the recorded human past. So stuff like manuscripts on paper, clay, animal skins, wood, stone, leaves, but this information is often biased and unreliable. So things like the winner writing the narrative and then oral history, which has been passed down through writing, can also be inaccurate over time. And then a lot of the manuscripts that we do have now, historically speaking, are actually copies because as we talked about, organic materials decay over time. So any writing that we do have has been passed down over time with people copying things. So we do archaeology in order to affirm or question the written record, but we can also use it in order to aid archaeology as well. Definitely. And so just to follow up on that, I think for people that don't know, so there are written cultures and then oral cultures. So a lot of European culture would be considered a written culture because we have done a lot of writing and we have a lot of that writing that we refer back to for history. Mm -hmm. Whereas oral cultures with, you know, oral histories that they pass down, it's a very different way of approaching your history. Mm -hmm. And so when you're trying to blend those to make a history of humankind, it can be a little bit difficult because one culture might approach it a different way than another one. Yeah, I think the whole idea of defining history and prehistory based on written records would be through a Western colonial framework. Mm -hmm. We sort of define writing as this necessary component of what we use to define civilization in this aspect of pre and post history, I guess, or prehistory and history. But yeah, in a lot of cultures, yeah, that would have been seen differently. So with pictographs or different visualizations or different methods of sharing knowledge instead of just our traditional written systems that in colonial and Western views we tend to regard. Absolutely. Yeah, it is a very like Western view to divide it that way, but it is often divided that way, unfortunately. And trying to reconcile that is something that we have to work to do. I think it's also connected to archaeology as a study because it is a really culturally variable subject and it is like a quote unquote Western science. Archaeology as it is and how we use it as Western scholars. It was created by the West to serve kind of our purposes. Yeah. So mm-hmm. to it's very extent, European yeah. centric. Yeah. It's interesting to consider, too, how it would have developed differently in places like Europe or England specifically, and how the idea of anthropology came to fruition in that European context as compared to how sort of the idea of then archaeology then developed, let's say, in the Americas as sort of a separate building on some of those anthropological foundations that were maybe more laid in early European scholars, I think, that we're going to talk about here in the beginning, and then how that foundation kind of grows later into 
archaeology as this scientific field that we then practice in the Americas and is even how it's sort of more scientifically minded in European studies today, but sort of the anthropological roots of that are really based in some of those European early scholars. So I think even like the Greek and Roman scholars and some of those earlier ideas, and I think that foundation is going to be pretty ingrained in how we perceive this study even today, right? You always got to kind of go back to roots and yeah. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this is some of the stuff that we'll be talking about. And so, of course, it is sort of difficult to define the history of a discipline, but we will attempt to do that. And one of the main references for this that we're sort of following is Bruce Trigger's History of Archaeological Thought, the second mm-hmm. edition, which is often the one. I think every researcher in our department has this book somewhere in their office. Um, but... It's generally focused on, so we're kind of going to follow the way that he has divided this into different periods, and this is going to be part one of a two-part look at this history, because we're going to sort of focus on up until, sort of as we talked about in the Earth Day episode, that 1950 marker tends to come up a lot, as it does here as well, and so... So we're going to talk about up until the 1950s in terms of the history. And then in part two of this topic, we'll be going from the 1950s until now. So we're going to start with sort of classical antiquarianism, mm-hmm. which Lulu's going to talk about. So the research for this was super fun because it's all slightly ridiculous, <laughs> uh, but also kind of sad <laughs> as a like a professional in the view of a professional archaeologist, I guess. I always get very upset when thinking about the history of archaeology. (laughs) So we just have to be happy about how far we've come. (laughs) Yeah. So the issue with quote-unquote archaeology is it's hard to define really what we would consider archaeology started. I think like an interest in humans in general could be considered anthropology, and humans have always been interested in humans. (laughs) And things we have made and done in the past so we tend to keep old things around so for example the maya prized jade ornaments that they passed on through generations and then there's the babylonians who some of the babylonian kings we knew that were kind of quote-unquote archaeologists where they would have ruins of the past especially the late babylonians neo-babylonians they would have old babylonian sites excavated and the mud brick temples looked at by their own architects. The same thing would happen in 18th dynasty Egypt where they would have craftsmen looking at and copying old kingdom art and architecture. So that's kind of like the oldest form of archaeology that we're aware of, but it really took off around the 17th and 18th centuries where you would have stuff like cabinets of curiosity. So basically, rich people would have their own little collections of interesting random little trinkets and items. And this started in Germany. So they were called Kruntzkabinett or (laughs) Wunderkammer, which Jillian could probably say better. Wunderkammer? (laughs) That. (laughs) And so people would collect things pertaining to natural history, archaeology, geology, religious or historical relics. Some of them were fake, but the idea was you would collect these things in order to show off your wealth, show off what you're interested in. Yeah. And for people who come over to your fancy house to come to your cabinet of curiosities and 
see interesting things. Not dissimilar from today, right? I think that's a large part of, you know, rich people culture is having Greek statues or something. Antiquities on display. Yeah. Or like random modern art that you bought for way too expensive. Way too much money. So these were like social devices. This actually started in the 16th century, but I think it kind of was a segue to the idea of grand tours. So This was a craze which started in the 17th century, where rich, high-class men who had just graduated Oxbridge, so around 21, would take a quote-unquote educational trip (laughs) where they would travel around Europe. And this is before train travel and stuff was really a big thing. So it was... It was difficult and expensive to get around. So Europeans, especially wealthy Europeans, were kind of obsessed with neoclassicism and the Renaissance. So especially if you're someone like an artist, you would want to go to Italy and see all the art. But then you would also want to bring stuff back with you to show that you'd been there. Kind of like a souvenir, I guess. But also to be like, I spent so much money on this thing. Like, come to my house and see it. So there was antiquarians who were people who, like, lived in these places like Greece and Italy and Egypt. And they would collect artifacts to sell to these people who were coming to these places. And it was basically, like, looting. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, people want marble statues, coins, armor. And it was a good business to have. but then also novel archaeologists started happening so some of these guys would want to like do their own excavations and they would have the money to so they would pick a spot hire people dig stuff up not record anything because all you care about is getting the thing to take home with you absolutely and take it back to england or france or wherever i did want to mention when you were discussing the aspect of early cultures going to do sort of their own version of archaeology with the Egyptians and some of those other groups, sort of having their own Mm -hmm. interest in the human past. It reminds me of a story that my supervisor told me when he was excavating an Iroquois longhouse in southern Ontario. And it was, I think, dating to like the 15th, 16th century, maybe. So sort of just prior to the arrival of Europeans. And he was actually excavating the floor of this longhouse. And in a pit beneath the floor, he found an archaic age spear point. So something thousands of years older than what would have been the context of this, you know, 14th, 15th century longhouse. But it's Mm -hmm. really interesting because it showed that someone who was living in this longhouse had an interest in history. Like they had obviously found this arrowhead in some kind of context. Maybe they recognized it or they at least realized that it was ancient and that it was a lot larger than that they were used to. And it was maybe attached to a spear, bone, arrow or something like that. And it was just really cool to think that someone who was living like, you know, we're doing archaeology on this site. And then almost like they were practicing archaeology also, they found something that was even older than they were and also took it home and thought it was interesting and buried it under the floor for some reason. So there was like, yeah, neat continuity of interest in history that we can even see in the archaeological record of people being interested in their own past that's been happening long before we're even talking about for when we define where we start getting interested in anthropology and history. Like you were saying, Lulu, I think people have always been interested in ourselves and our past. Actually, that's kind of funny because also in Europe, because they were using like iron tools and stuff and weren't using lithic technology anymore for a few thousand years, Whenever they would find any kind of points, they called them elf stones. And there was lore around it that like either they were created by lightning or that elves were making them and putting them around the countryside. But it's interesting that somebody who's still using stone tools would recognize that that's a tool and not something an elf made. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't 
I mean, I can't speak for that person in the past that <laughs> Pete was excavating for. Like, I don't know oh. what they thought of it, but it's just interesting to know that they clearly they had interest in it and that it was, yeah. yeah, but you could tell by the context that it was placed there intentionally, but what behind that intention, I have, I can only speculate. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it'd be really interesting to know if there was lore attached to certain stone tools, if they were ever recognized in the past and the explanations people might give to explain their existence. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. Even... I mean, there's yeah. people that thought that there was people were vampires, and so they would bury them with a brick in their mouth so that they couldn't come they back couldn't alive. They couldn't rise up. Wow. Yeah, and then I mean, isn't that where the stake comes from? I think so. Like yeah. putting a stake through somebody's heart stops them from probably. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, well, and then we found out that more than likely that these were places that were ravaged by like a plague. Isn't it usually you know. tuberculosis that they associate with vampirism? I think so. She has a lot of symptoms of getting ill from tuberculosis tend to mirror a lot of what's described for vampires. So like your pale complexion, you should get chapped lips and your gums start to bleed and deteriorate. So you would look like you were drinking blood and And you you usually like not want to go out into the sun. Yeah, your skin actually got like thinner and you were not taking in nutrients, I don't think very well. So you became really thin and and it's contagious, right? So the whole idea that vampires like, yeah, ate their family and sucked the life out of them. It's because that was they were passing on this. Yeah disease if you were in close proximity yeah it's pretty interesting though (laughs) we should do an episode about that sort of stuff that would be awesome oh like the yeah diseases and how people explain them through time that would be yeah or like the elf stones and then vampires you know Mm -hmm. how some of these sort of mythical creatures maybe the stories around them started Mm -hmm. so people were bringing stuff back from their trips and then often these would get collected and so systems like the three age system started to be developed which was the brainchild of cj thompson the director of the royal museum of nordic antiquities in copenhagen in the 1800s and basically he's the one that created the stone age bronze age iron age distinctions that we know and these are considered relative dating techniques where basically items were dated to be older or or newer based on the material they were made of the system was kind of eurocentric but people were studying europe at the time because not everywhere has the same stone age bronze age iron age kind of divisions did we i don't know if we made that clear enough what we especially what bruce trigger talks about as being the beginning of anthropology is always sort of based in europe Mm -hmm. so this is all sort of establishing in europe but it's kind of like an imported study yeah you know yeah (laughs) but then later we started to have more divided i guess divisions yes which we still use today. So in 1865, John Lubbock, Lubbock, he took the Stone Age and he turned it into the Paleolithic, the Neolithic, and the Mesolithic. And that is a division we still use. So basically the old Stone Age, the new Stone Age, and the middle Stone Age in order to just be more specific. We really like splitting things up and classifying we, them, don't oh, we? Gosh, love splitting we do. Things. Putting things in little boxes. Yeah. Chronologies and categorizations. That really should be what our discipline is titled. <laughs> We dig boxes, and then we put things in boxes. <laughs> Very accurate. That's really, yeah. <laughs> Done. Episode. Boom. Literal and figuratively. <laughs> that's it. That's, that's what archaeology is. <laughs> so, connected to the Grand Tours, we have Napoleon's scientific expedition of 1798, which also aligns with his invasion of Egypt and Syria in what is known as the Egyptian Campaign. 
And people say that he was a big fan of the Enlightenment. And so when he went to Egypt, he decided to bring a bunch of scholars and scientists with him. This is the first time he had done this. And they were originally supposed to help out with the soldiers getting across things. Maybe they need to build a bridge or grow food or whatever. But these scientists started documenting things that they saw along the way and collecting artifacts. And then Napoleon founded the Egyptian Scientific Institute in Egypt. But one of the most notable things they found was in 1799 when they found the Rosetta Stone. And then later it was translated by Jean-Francois Champollion, not to be confused with Napoleon. <laughs> so that's how we were able to read hieroglyphs and demotic texts, which is like the cursive version of Egyptian. And the findings were published by Napoleon and because of the printing press, they caused a huge craze in Europe for ancient Egypt. And that's kind of where Egyptology kind of blew up and people started to want Egyptian artifacts in their houses, but then also to kind of emulate Egyptian architecture. So if you go to some of these European British estates and stuff, you can see Egyptian column styles from around this time because people saw the images and they thought it looked cool. <laughs> oh, and then we have specific people who might be considered archaeologists. So one of the first was Giovanni Battista Belzoni, who I think called himself the Great Belzoni. <laughs> <laughs> and he was obsessed with Egypt and he excavated a lot of sites. He is known for removing the large bust of Ramses II called the Young Memnon from where it stood and moving it to the British Museum. And he also cleared sand out of the temple at Abu Simbel in 1817. And he also excavated Karnak and the Pyramid of Giza. He's the first person to, I don't like the word penetrate, but he, he penetrated the Pyramid of Giza. Um, <laughs> it's not a good enough reason to use the word penetrate. <laughs> what should I say? He, he dug into the Pyramid of Giza. Explore? Uh. <laughs> um, but also a lot of the archaeologists that I know that talk about him basically call him a glorified looter, especially yeah. the Near Eastern archaeologists. Well, and a lot of, we, like, a lot of the first like archaeologists were. They were glorified yeah. looters. They just stole things from other countries and then brought it back to Europe. So mm -hmm. if you're wondering why the British Museum has so many things, it's because there was really no regulations. And all of these people were coming from England and just taking stuff. Well, that's still an issue. I when I went to the British Museum and I was so surprised to see all this. Like, there's a whole an Egyptian section, and that mm. like that is a huge issue. Uh, that is a point of contention today. Is all this stuff that should be repatriated, but it was stolen so long ago. It's mm -hmm. and it's like, oh well, it's in a museum now. It's like, yeah, but you still stole it. <laughs> yeah, that's like there's a British comedian James Acaster, and he has a bit where <laughs> he's we talking want about it. the British Museum. Yeah. <laughs> We're still looking at it. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to hide that it belongs to you. We put a plaque stating how important <laughs> it is to you and your culture. <laughs> That's a great bit. <laughs> and oh, speaking of one of these people, Heinrich Schliemann, who people call an archaeologist, but any archaeologist that hears that just like your skin crawls because he's the worst. Yeah. So he's most famous for quote unquote finding Troy and he was a Hellenophile, which means he was obsessed with the Greeks. <laughs> 
and he believed that the Iliad was an historical account. So he studied the Iliad and the Odyssey and all these Greek texts, and he really thought that it was real. Not the, like, god parts, obviously, but he thought it was historical fact. So him not being a professionally trained archaeologist, and there not being a great amount of regulation back then, but being a super, super rich dude could take time off doing whatever he was doing to go down into the, the Aegean. And he found this archaeologist who he was friends with called Frank Calvert, who suggested that he thinks that Troy is at an ancient city called Hisarlik in Turkey and told him that he should go dig there. And conveniently, part of the land was owned by Frank's family. So he was like, hey, buddy, I know you love, <laughs> I know you love Troy. I think it's here. You should go dig there. So in order to do this, he decided that he needs an assistant who knows about the Greeks and Greek. So obviously he divorced his wife <laughs> and he put the feelers out for whoever was a suitable match and he married 17 year old Sophia and Gastromenos. He was 47 at the time. So he's also a pedophile. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> also I, I found this and I thought it was really funny. They're, they named their kids Andromach, uh, Troy, and Agamemnon. <laughs> So he starts excavating in 1871 and he dug down huge sections of the city and ignored everything above what he thought was the age of Troy. So what he found are two very, very important archaeological finds, but they might be faked. <laughs> so the first thing was the Mask of Agamemnon, which, oh, first of all, none of these things actually are from the actual people that were involved in the Trojan War. But because he wanted everything to have to do with the Trojan War, he just named everything after people from the Trojan War. <laughs> so the Mask of Agamemnon is a gold mask. It's death mask. And what's suspicious about it is it has a handlebar mustache that suspiciously looks like the kind of facial hair they would have in the 19th century. Hmm. And so people contest it. Some people have suggested that he actually planted it at night and then had his workers excavate it. <laughs> just because he wanted to find something. Sound methods there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he also found a cache of gold and jewelry called Priam's Treasure. And one of the things in there was a set of jewelry called the Jewels of Helen. And there's a famous photo of his wife, Sophia, wearing the jewels. And then apparently also they snuck those into their personal items and snuck them back to England. <laughs> so wait, was and he the, excavating at the right Troy? Yeah, it was right. It was Troy. But the thing was that the level he had marked as where the Iliad happened was actually way too deep. It was hundreds of years too early. Oh. <laughs> so... The Battle of Troy, which didn't actually happen, <laughs> but if it did happen, it would have happened from 1260 to 1180 BCE. We do think there was a battle at Troy, but it wasn't the Battle of Troy that Homer talks about. And the thing is, he went through layers without recording anything. He didn't make any maps. He had very few descriptions of the site. This is all bad archaeological practice. Oh. Yeah. And the issue with archaeology, which I wanted to touch on, was that archaeology is destructive. So once we lose any of this information, there's no way to get it back. Yeah, um, so if it's not done well to begin with, then it ultimately is an issue because you can't do it again. Mm -hmm. The problem with archaeology is that it's inherently destructive and you can never go back in time and re-establish that context that you found something in. So you always want to record, mm -hmm. record, record. 
record everything or yeah. and leave a spot unexcavated in case future methods are more detailed than we currently have so that you can actually get the more detailed information as long as part remains unexcavated good methods mm-hmm. oh and then if that wasn't enough <laughs> he also excavated mycenaean sites which the mycenaeans are probably ancestors of the greeks and there was problems there too because he at first he was excavating without permission and he was digging deep shafts and like just doing very similarly terrible archaeological practices. But then I also read that he got awarded a PhD for his publications. So, you know, <laughs> just, <laughs> just so until you make it. And then kind of a colleague of his was Arthur Evans, who was also very famous. He was a professional archaeologist and he studied the Aegean civilizations of the Bronze Age. Mm-hmm. He's like kind of the founder of this study. And he's the one that identified the difference between the Mycenaean and Minoan cultures, mm. which are two proto-Greek cultures. And he did this based on artifact comparison. He also is the one that identified Linear A and Linear B script, which is basically the alphabet of the Minoans and Mycenaeans. But he also had some issues because he excavated at Mycenae, which is also where Schliemann had excavated. But then after he was done his excavations, based on his theories, he had the site reconstructed. He didn't record a lot. He had random people who like were not experts in ancient architecture come in and he was like, I think this is a throne room and had it turned into a throne room. And now the issue for us is we don't know what's original and what he had done. So that's a bummer. (laughs) And yeah, that is some antiquarianism and early archaeology. Yeah. And then, so that sort of gets us, when were Schliemann and Evans working? Evans worked until 1905, I believe. And then, so Kelsey was going to sort of follow up with some of the stuff that was at the same time overlapping a bit. So Lulu seemed to be talking about a lot of examples with human interactions in the material culture and sort of how that interest in Europe had changed through time. And I think my subjects kind of talk a little more about how theories of understanding human change through time have adapted. So this is sort of the same processes of trying to understand the human past that are happening concurrently or at the same time periods, sort of this mid 19th century to 20th century, but sort of looking at how prehistoric archaeology or how this idea of the past came to be Following antiquarianism, which Lulu was just discussing, we sort of have a systematic study of prehistory that took place over two distinct movements. So beginning in the early 1800s and then again in about the 1850s. And those sort of coincided with what Lulu was talking about. So this idea of the ability to relatively date archaeological finds and categorize them as the study of Paleolithics. So basically those Stone Age. And just the recognition that this was an earlier time period, that this was different than the modern day and how that change through time occurred. And basically following around these ideas is that with these older stone artifacts being recovered, the earth seemed to be much older than previously believed. So around this time period, of course, the church has major control of a lot of the ideas. So socially, it's sort of just understood and accepted that the earth is only as old as biblical time has allowed, which will only be about, what is it, 6,000 something years, I think. Mm Mm-hmm. There's a very specific date. I think it's like 6,000. No, I'm pretty, sure it, I'm pretty sure it is 6,000. I mean, that's the one. Ugh, one of my coworkers told me to read this book, he, which is terrible. But, anyways, he specifically said, yeah, 6,000 years. 
Mm-hmm. I think they've able to, been able to trace it to like relative decades even. But so that would have been sort of the narrative. But in 1859, we have Darwin's Origin of Species getting published. And sort of around this time period, a lot of these ideas are brought into question due to the tangible material culture, some of these stone tools and just the belief of their antiquity, just that they must be older. They were made by this older group. So how do we begin to study that? And just as you were talking about with Christian Jurgensen Thompson, we begin to see in Scandinavia a model that starts to develop for understanding of this prehistory. So understanding of the antiquity of stone tools, followed by bronze, followed by different chronologies. And this helps us to understand how this change through time actually occurred and then sort of expand it to a larger area. then we can take the understanding of how change through time happened to relatively date. If we find an artifact then that matches something we found before, we can date approximately how old it is. So that's sort of how this idea of prehistory came to fruition. And especially in relation to Western ideas of what we can learn from the written record and what we need to interpret then from the archaeological record. So this is where sort of the idea of prehistory came to be in Europe. And then applied today in North America, there's a few critiques to the idea of prehistory. So one of those is pretty eloquently summarized by Stephen Silliman in his work in 2009. It's an article published in American Antiquity. And in this article, it basically discusses that a lot of indigenous groups in North America are defined by archaeologists of this term prehistoric artifacts and then the historic groups following European contact. But it's a very arbitrary date that we pick of European contact as when their history, quote unquote, then begins, where we then see the written record. But we use this term a lot in archaeology to sort of define this change that happened that, oh, you know, all these increased trade goods were introduced and that would have completely disrupted the lifestyle of the peoples that were living here. But what we really need to sort of consider is where we actually define that baseline. So who's to say, like, from our European sort of colonial perspectives that that defining moment was actually that monumental in driving change for these groups. You know, this term prehistoric and historic that we're using, I think it's good to be aware that this is something that we've created, that we've defined our own baseline for how to define these groups instead of something that's maybe how they choose to define themselves. So a set in stone, like it definitely isn't, you know, yeah. how many huge culture clashes happened before Europeans got to North America? Potentially infinite. Yeah, who knows? (laughs) Right? People were running into different cultures many times, and that would have changed the way that they lived their lives. Mm -hmm. So we sort of look at that as a defining point arbitrarily, it seems, for defining material contact change. But I think that sort of comes from... So that's sort of where the whole idea of prehistory was in the past, but it's a pretty antiquated idea, I think, to apply in our modern day studies. But it's definitely something that we used in the past and applied for our understanding of how the world works. And sort of, while these ideas were happening, it coincided with a lot of these evolutionary theories, as I mentioned with Darwin, that were sort of coming to light around the 19th century, so around the 1800s. And these were based on ideas put forth a long time before that. So even the ancient Greeks and ancient Romans were interested in the study of antiquities. So the term archaeology actually comes from a Greek word dating to at least 1600. So we have a lot of interest in 
history. But around the 1800s, we begin to see a lot more of the concepts of evolutionary theory and biology and an understanding of the natural world than applied to some of our understandings of cultural change and progression. So this is sort of where we begin to see a study of human culture change and human interaction as actually like an evolutionary progressive context. So basically that you begin in one stage and then you transform into another and transform into another. So this idea kind of started a long while ago, like in the 600 to 500 500 BC, so about 2,500 years ago, there was a philosopher, Anaximander, Anaximander, we'll say that. I apologize if I mispronounced that. <laughs> uh, so he was the first to state that the universe was governed by natural laws, and then he began to sort of ponder animal and human origins. So this was long before Darwin, but even about 2,000 years ago, we see some starting to question where humans actually originated from. Because of religious prominence during the 1800s, the concept of essentialism, or you know, the idea that obviously God created the universe and everything within it, that was the primary narrative. And and it definitely wasn't accepted for you to go against that narrative. A lot of people faced a lot of criticism. Criticisms, yeah, let's that's a nice way to say it. Criticisms for uh, believing or promoting ideas that went against those really fundamental religious beliefs. So we have Carl Linnaeus in actually the 1700s, so the 16th century. He lived from about 1707 to 1778, so his lifespan pretty much spanned that whole 1700s era. And uh, I'm sure we all learned about him in biology class, but he was basically the one, remember, with his peas and the Punnett squares and showing yes. that, yeah, change was... Wasn't brought on monk? from generation. Yeah, he was like a monk with a lot of time gardening. Like yeah. now, maybe we'll make another in our quarantine times. Huge breakthrough <laughs> in our understanding of the natural world because we got all this time to garden now. Maybe. <laughs> but yes, at that point in time, people sort of were under the impression that it was actually your willpower that caused change to occur. So this is a lot more of the idea that like it's an evolutionary construct that's driving cultural change, not necessarily like human autonomy and our decisions and behavior. It was something just inherently within our natural adaptive sense, our evolutionary yeah, will to do, to build culture, to do what we're supposed to do. This was our, you know, fundamental natural progression. So that was sort of the understanding at, at that period in time. And that's what sort of laid the foundation for Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, who then gave the idea that species aren't necessarily fixed in the way that they're going to exist, but actually can change based on their environment. So he, I think, looked at how a giraffe's neck was really long, and that was ideally to reach some of those really high up leaves. So he began to think like, hey, you know, he's progressed to have a really long neck. He must have chosen to do that. Oh, maybe like humans and groups have chosen to live certain ways. So this is sort of where these ideas are stemming from. And then of course we get Charles Lyell, a geologist coming about in the 1800s to the 19th century. He was born at the end of the 16th century. This confused. I hate that they're slightly off from each other. This throws me off so much. Anyways, <laughs> 1800s, we get Charles Lyell. He's a geologist. He introduces the idea of uniformitarianism. So that's basically the idea that the same processes that were happening in the past are happening today. He based that on the Mississippi Delta. So basically that's the giant sediment plume that kind of comes out of a river because rivers erode a lot of dirt and they deposit them. He started seeing that and how fast it was happening. He's like, hey, maybe this process is also what created 
a lot of the stuff we see in other parts of the country, like the Grand Canyon and throughout the world. So he was like, hey, maybe this is an idea. And then Darwin, this had a pretty big influence on him. And he started to think that, hey, maybe that's what's happening with all the species that we see, that they're actually being influenced by their environment. They're passing it on like what Mendel had kind of hypothesized, but it's this continuous change through time that's always acting on a species, just like Lyle had hypothesized in relation to geology. And all this sort of ideas confluence together. And then we have Darwin writing The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection in 1859, and then The Descent of Man in 1871. So those two works were sort of a really fundamental idea in our understanding of how species evolved. And then I think this also began to sort of bring the idea of humans as a species within this system. So not necessarily as being a separate entity that was governed by godly laws. We might actually be governed by natural laws. And really that then allowed us to then maybe be put in some of these classification systems. So that sort of led to an idea that a lot of these early archaeologists and people interested in studying human history had the perception that people and cultures always moved on a progressive scale from sort of a more primal and simplistic way of living, so sort of hunters and gatherers, to then more quote-unquote civilized or cultured groups. So they perceived yeah. themselves, the researchers, <laughs> these people living in this enlightened age, of course, to be the ultimate goal. And then, yeah, that humanity would then progress. Of course, that's a very backwards and narrow-minded way of thinking about it. It's funny because we talked about that in the first episode as well. It yeah. comes up so often, this idea, yeah, of evolution is often talked about of being like going towards a goal and it's not it's not the way true. it is. Yeah. Yeah. So this like progression, yeah, from savagery to civilized. And that was sort of the whole evolutionary time period is that there was really the idea that culture acted like evolution, that it was this progressive action working towards this final perfect, but even in evolution, it's not perfect. It's just whatever works, whatever works best. That's all we evolved to. Okay. But also <laughs> not necessarily. Have you heard there was this ancient, it's like a moose type animal that literally because of sexual selection, the females were selecting for with the like biggest antlers. And eventually they literally died out because the antlers were too big and they couldn't support their heads. And so Wouldn't they surprise died. Me. And, and there's also, I think, boars whose tusks grew into their skulls because same thing, the females were selecting for these big tusks. And then they eventually grew into their skulls and then they died out. So no, evolution doesn't always <laughs> equal a good thing. No, and cult same with cultural progression, you know, who's to say that this civilized, cultured, quote unquote, is the best way to go? As we are learning, maybe capitalism is not the enlightened end goal that we all thought it was. <laughs> Anyways. Um, yeah, so pretty incredibly ethnocentric and Eurocentric work in the past, and that's sort of what was happening in that prehistoric evolutionary context. So that's sort of where, like, that time period in a scientific sense of these two disciplines, where that thinking was then stemming from. Yeah, yeah. and so something that I think we see kind of over the history of anthropology and archaeology, and generally, like, human history, mm -hmm. from my perspective anyway, is there's kind of these waves that happen. And there's this idea, <laughs> can't remember who suggested, I'm going to figure this out and say it next episode, but there's this idea that the time that, that is 
accumulating, that will produce certain ideas. And so it's the idea that if there hadn't been an Einstein, somebody mm. else would have been Einstein. The time period, it was the right like breeding ground for those ideas to be suggested. I'm pretty sure at the same time as Darwin, there was another guy who like independently came up with his own there absolutely uh, evolutionary was. theory. Yeah. And then they published at the exact same time because they figured out that they were both writing the same thing. But he isn't remembered now. I think his name was... <laughs> isn't starts it, with a W. Isn't it Mal- Thomas? Watson? Or was it Watson or something? I think it's like Watson or something. Like, yeah, I, I think Watson was the one. Because Darwin and him, I think, were writing back and forth to each other. And Darwin just happened to yeah. publish right before him. Because who, who's Maltus? I think he actually started writing it after Darwin did, but because Darwin took so long oh, to yeah. publish his evolutionary theory, they, they published it almost the exact same time. Yeah. Oh, Alfred Russell Wallace. Yes, Ugh. there we go. He was the other one. Wallace. Totally. And we see that happen so often. And even, you know, the people that are revered for having certain ideas are not necessarily the first person to have had that idea. It's just mm-hmm. that, yeah, it's a time period. These ideas are culminating. And so this actually leads into the cultural historical period of archaeology quite well, because so along with that, those sort of waves that happen, a lot of what we see is a focus on in anthropology and archaeology, we see a focus on the broader and then the more specific. And so with uniformitarianism, the idea that, oh, people thought the same way that we do, right? It's this sort of general idea of looking at humans. I think, for example, now, currently in 2020, we're very focused on the individual person. And so We like to look at, oh, this person, what they do compared to humans as a whole and what they were doing. And you see that a lot in the the anthropological thought where it's this wave of, oh, we think about humans generally, we think about them individually. And Mm -hmm. it can often affect like a lot of the changes that we'll see even later show this in, in part two of this, like after the 1950s, show this even more, especially focusing on like with feminist theory being incorporated and indigenous archaeology as well, that is more focusing on the individual themselves, where it's like these people matter and not just what humanity was doing matters. Mm -hmm. But so culture historical archaeology began in the late 19th century, sort of after these ideas that Kelsey and Lulu were talking about. And so it's a continuation of those evolutionary ideas, looking at things happening in sort of a progression. But it began as a response to a growing awareness of the geographical variability in the archaeological record at the time. So as we were talking about, all this was very Europe-based. And then they sort of realized, oh, wait, there's places other than Europe (laughs) that have a different landscape. And so that cultural evolutionism was being challenged a bit. And it was around the same time that Western and Central Europe was experiencing declining faith in the benefits of technological progress. So people are starting to think, oh, you know, technological progress maybe isn't always a good thing. And this disillusionment with progress led to the thinking that humans were not inherently inventive and they were unlikely to think up the same ideas in different areas. Literally the opposite of what I was just saying, where people don't have the same ideas in different areas at the same time. And like the example that is often brought up is pyramids where people are so surprised that pyramids could have possibly popped up at the same time in different places. And then often people talk about aliens being (sighs) a part of those buildings. But no, it's literally just that 
it's an easy structure to make. You start at the base, you make the base, and then you go up from there and meet it. But the thinking at this time, at the end of the 1800s, the late 19th century, was that people aren't inventive. And so archaeologists lean towards theories surrounding the migration of people and the diffusion of ideas instead of people having ideas separately. I don't know if I need to do this, but, you know, migration of people is people moving from one place to another, and diffusion of ideas is ideas spreading. And then there was also at this time a surge in nationalism and racism. And so remember, this is the time leading up to the founding of the Nazi party. And so throughout the 19th century in England and France, nationalism was expressed strongly in historical writing. And so increasing beliefs about biological and cultural superiority affected quote unquote research at the time, as well as a good example is Britain's beliefs about themselves. And so dominant upper and upper middle classes viewed themselves as the spiritual, if not biological, heirs of the Normans, which were thought of to be a very good group of people. <laughs> and then anthropology and archaeology was used at this time as a way to justify and strengthen those nationalist ideas. And due to this prominent nationalism, archaeologists tended to focus on the Neolithic and more recent periods compared to Paleolithic times. And then during the 1800s, because of more intensive agriculture and land reclamation projects, more and more archeological material was collected throughout Europe, which is like a good thing for archeology, span <laughs> technically. And then these archeologists really focusing on their home country. But then in the 1870s and 1880s, Scandinavian archeologists influenced more detailed classification and comparison of archeological finds. And so they also argued at this time, continuing on, so they finally realized, oh yeah, humans are a species. Then they started to think that they argued that French, Germans, and English people were all biologically different from one another and their behavior was affected by this. Which is crazy, but mm -hmm. to think back on. But at the time, I guess, you know. I think if they thought that different racial, what they determined to be different racial groups were all biologically different, I don't think it's a far throw to be like, well, I'm not like the Germans either. Totally. And we love that othering, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> we really like to be, we like to define who we are based on what we're not. And so saying that, you know, another group that you don't like is a different species than you can really help with that. But like a technically good thing that came out of this is that this interest in better classification and chronologies led people like Gustav Oscar Montelius and Hans Hildebrand to propose much better classification of archaeological materials. And so back to that three-age system, Montelius also worked out a chronology of the Scandinavian Bronze Age and divided the Neolithic into four periods, the Bronze Age into six, and the Iron Age into ten. So we're just making more and more boxes, essentially. Mm -hmm. And then so Friedrich Ratzel and Franz Boas, who were both Germans, the Germans thrived at this time for <laughs> anthropological thought. But they are two of the most well-known ethnologists uh, from this time period. And so if you don't know what an ethnologist is, they are, we often classify them as anthropologists and they are specifically talking to groups of people and hearing from them compared to, you know, digging and trying to figure out about those people. But Ratzel argued that because the world is small, it is unlikely that humans would have had ideas for the same invention more than once, as I was saying. And so he argued that inventions like the blowpipe and the bow and arrow could be traced back to one common source <laughs> instead of just, oh yeah, this seems like a thing that could work and trying it out in different places. 
But anyway, and so Boaz was very influenced by, I think it's actually Retzel, and he brought his ideas into North American archaeology. And so, yeah, Franz Boaz is often the one that we talk about being one of the first North American archaeologists. And then soon after 1910, a lot of these ideas really spread, and we talk a lot about what was happening in Mexico, where he isn't, Franz Boaz isn't necessarily talked about as being an, an archaeologist, necessarily, but his students were the ones who were really working on a lot of this sort of thoughts. But some of the good things that came out of culture historical archaeology is that we got better sequences of dates, and we got seriation and stratigraphy and classification. And all of these techniques led to better archaeology, unlike what Lulu was talking about with, you know, no records being taken and no maps being drawn some of that started to happen and it, but again it is it's all sort of based on relative dating where we find out the date of something and then based on where that is if it's above or below it then we know that it's older or younger than that and then v gordon child is also somebody who was at this time but i won't get into him too much because i should keep pretty short but so that sort of sets us up to some of the better ideas that can come into archaeology that we're going to talk about in the part two of this. But one thing that we wanted to talk about sort of at the end of this episode is talking about what really is considered anthropology versus archaeology. Mm-hmm. And so you talked about this, Lulu, a decent amount about, well, and you did too, Kelsey, but you know, the startings of archaeology, when was that? And, and you know, as you said, it's often with people actually taking things. It's often about the material culture, Mm -hmm. whereas the anthropological thought was much earlier than that. Yeah, yeah. I think, well, you talked about Boas. He's the one that kind of created the distinctions within anthropology that we have now in North America. So the biological, cultural, anthropology, archaeology, and then the linguistics falling all of them under anthropology. Yeah. But in Europe, they have a distinction between anthropology and then archaeology is more related to like history. Yes. And Um, we often talk about like classical archaeology as well. mm -hmm. But So Rome and Greece and like those major powers in the Mediterranean are a separate study. (laughs) But yes, this is, as you're alluding to, it is very much where you're based that a lot of these distinctions are made. And so Mm -hmm. at the University of Calgary that we attend, it's funny because the department is anthropology and archaeology, but most universities in Canada, they just have an anthropology department. Mm -hmm. And then often linguistics can be either shoved in with that or somewhere else. At UFC, it's not part of anthropology. Mm -hmm. But what I found when I was looking at schools is a lot of them, if they have an anthropology department, they don't focus on archaeology much. Yes, that is. Yeah, it can vary. And I think it's, yeah, like you were saying, really different based on if you're an Ivy League school in North America, a school in Canada, if you're in England, like studying no matter where your pedagogy would be really based on these developments that happened at that location through time, like how the disciplines actually came to be in that area would be really heavily influenced on then the education you're getting now. And it seems to be, we really like to isolate and define separate disciplines. So that's why interdisciplinary study now is such a hot button topic. But a lot of these earlier anthropologists, archaeologists that we were talking about, quote unquote, I don't know if they would even define themselves, you know, as studying that discipline, just because these terms didn't necessarily 
exist at that period in time and we're sort of defining them today yeah Yeah. so i think they defined boaz as an anthropogeographer so sort of like he was because he was studying the land and humans and all these different aspects and i think it's interesting today because it almost seems like we're moving away from that idea of the interconnectedness of all these different aspects of study like landscape the geography the human nature just sort of we're categorized we're trying to separate them like oh i only study anthropology and i don't study geography or i only study archaeology material culture not anthropology but it's we don't realize how interconnected and how truly interdisciplinary all these different studies are you know i wonder if we should have maybe a more open idea some that some of these earlier anthropologists quote-unquote had like in how they understood the world and sort of a more broad idea of what we actually define in this discipline as well and it's funny because as we saw like through this history that we talked about, we tend to those more and more specific sort of groupings. And as I, yeah, as you're saying, I think that is continuing to happen where it's like, no, I'm specifically a geoarchaeologist <laughs> or landscape archaeologist or, you know, and these very specific sort of things. But then we're focusing on interdisciplinary work. It's like, well, why can't we just, instead of being so specific, why can't we have this more broad understanding of everything? And working towards, you know, more of these altogether compared to specifying so much. But but do you think the, like, complexity in our study now in terms of, like, the different techniques we can use, the different areas you study, are we able to have that much knowledge, like, accumulated in one person? Well, precisely. And as we're talking about with the understanding of, you know, anthropology or archaeology in a certain place, that mm-hmm. also translates to... The understanding of that place like there are people that focus specifically on maya pottery and you mm-hmm. have to because you know the way that archaeology is even done in different countries is so different that often yes you have to have a specific group or area or culture that you focus on because there's too much to know otherwise mm-hmm. yeah. yeah i totally agree But we'll get more into that in the part two of this. I'm going to try to wrap this up. But yes. Yeah. Great segue, (laughs) Jill. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, so we will continue this conversation in part two. Right now, we'll wrap that up. I don't know. We'll talk about a lot of interesting topics. Processualism. Post-processualism. Post-processualism. Yeah, how our ideas and understandings of human culture change through time has adapted and been influenced we will yes and the and the incorporation of feminist theory yeah, a broadening of the ideologies that we are going to examine through the 20th century up to the modern day it does get better i promise <laughs> anyway, it gets better. so i think that was a good uh, part one thank you very much for listening We will be posting, again, as always, references for this episode and further resources, things to check out. I wonder if there's a timeline of this somewhere. I know I made one for my method and theory class, but I wonder if maybe there's one that we can post. That would be great. So yes, we'll have that all posted, depending on where you're listening to this, (laughs) in the description for this episode. But it's also all on our website, which is pertaining to people.com. And we also have Instagram, so that's at pertaining to people. And we have a Twitter, which is P2PPLpod. I hate saying this every time. P2PPLpod. We had to make it different. The other one was too long. And what else do we have? Oh, and if you have any questions or concerns or comments, 
please email us at pertaining to people at gmail.com. We want to hear from you so that we have stuff to talk about and <laughs> <laughs> not just talk at each other the whole time as much as I love to do that. <laughs> And on our website, you can subscribe to our email list so you can hear about any new episodes that are coming out. And if you want to support us in any way, and again, if there's any bidet companies out there that wants <laughs> to give us money, <laughs> let me know. Um, give, send us an email. And uh, I think that's it. Yeah. Awesome. Happy, Hit us up. Happy Like and subscribe down below. Anthropology. <laughs> History of anthropology, yay! Yeah, like I feel like we should have like a like a anthropo <laughs> archaeology <laughs> anthropology. Uh, yeah, no, we need a tagline. Yeah. Also, if anyone has any suggestions for taglines, hit us up. Let us know. People. People. Her. <laughs> Wait, I'm gonna stop. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. <laughs>